This morning you can see that we're in verses 6 through 13 of 1 Corinthians 4, and we're going to be looking at how Paul talks about the marks of a true apostle and how different they are from the marks of the Corinthian congregation that were boasting in their own power and wisdom and who are living not for the kingdom that's coming, but they had thought that they had fully come into the kingdom now in the sense that they were only looking for superior wisdom. They weren't looking for a resurrected body and reigning in glory with Christ. And so Paul is to show them, though, that he is an apostle, and though he speaks for God, he is the one who is suffering. And is it not ironic that those who are the most ungodly in their character and their actions are reveling in their own behavior and boasting in their own wisdom and so there's this great irony and so we have a very simple structure in verses 6 through 13 the first thing we're going to see is the pride of the corinthians in verses 6 through 8 and verse 10 and that's juxtaposed to the humility of paul in verses 9 11 and through 13 now paul also friends he lumps not only himself but the other apostles in his own apostolic authorities so in other words when paul is speaking of himself he's also speaking of the other apostles Okay, so the humility of not only Paul, but the other apostles, there's great irony. Again, Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, is hated and suffers for the true gospel. And here you have the Corinthians. They're selfish and boastful. They neglect the gospel. Now, that doesn't mean they're saved. Remember, they're just not acting according to the salvation that they have. So they're neglecting the gospel that actually saved them and they're elevating themselves. And so Paul is going to have to show them, look, I'm the one who's true to the gospel. I'm the one who's been preaching the gospel and I'm scorned, hated, and the dregs of the world. But yet you who is forsaking and shunning the gospel, you're elevated and you're boasting in yourself. How ironic. And so this is going to be... Friends, this is devastating irony. This is going to cut the Corinthians to their heart or at least it's designed to do so. Of course, it's God's doing whether it does or not. So now let's get into the first verse. Verse 6, Paul teaches the Corinthians not to boast... He says, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. Notice this term, these things. The the thing that you have to understand or to interpret this passage correctly is you have to know what things he's talking about. Well, the things that he's referring to are the things that were attributed to Paul and Apollos as being fellow workers. Okay, do you remember the metaphors that he used? He used three different metaphors. The first one was he used the farming analogy. Remember, Paul was the planter, Apollos watered, but God made the increase, right? So the point is, is why would you boast in the, the planter and the waterer, but boast in God? Okay, see, they're just fellow servants. That's this whole point. Paul was the master builder. Remember we talked about in 1 Corinthians 3.10 that he was the architectone. He was the, the architect. He wasn't just merely the technician or the builder. He was the architect of the whole building. Okay? So the point being, though, is he worked for who? The master of the building, the one who owned it. That is Christ himself. Don't glory in the architect. Glory in the owner of the building. And then he was one of the head servants, him and Apollo. So again, these men are servants. They work for Christ. Christ is the owner, boast in him. Okay? And that's why he had attributed these things figuratively for their sake. Now notice we have two purpose statements. We have one there, so that, and we have another one right there. So two purpose statements. Anytime you see a so that, 
it's usually hina in Greek, and hina is a purpose statement. In order that, so that. And so here we have two of them. And by the way, the second one, I'll be showing you this on the next slide, the second one, that purpose statement really carries all the way to the end of this section in verse 13. Okay, But the first purpose statement is where I have it underlined here, so that you would learn not to exceed what is written. Now, it's interesting, the term in the Greek here literally would be things, because this is actually a neuter plural definite article. Okay, So it's literally things that have been written. I'll explain why that's significant. Okay, But now there's three different interpretations of this passage. What does it mean not to exceed the things written? Well, number one, there's some scholars that say there was a common saying in the day where you had to, quote-unquote, play within the rules. And so it would be the idea that Paul is saying, you're not treating me fairly, you're treating me outside the boundaries how you yourself are treated, and there's no cause to do so. That's very unlikely, although a lot of modern scholars hold to that, and I'll show you why. Here's the other two possibilities. Second, what is written is what Paul had written up to that point. Okay, So in other words, everything that he had written up to that point and what, what he's saying then is that he does not want the Corinthians to exceed the boundaries that he's laying out. And the third option is this. Not to exceed what is written means not to exceed the scriptures in general. Now, I think we have what's called a double entendre. It's not, it's not two or three. It's both. It's both, both and. Okay? In other words, Paul has written scriptures up to that point. He's used the Old Testament. And what he's telling the Corinthians is that they dare not to exceed the scriptures because if they exceed what is written in the scriptures, they will boast in themselves in human ability. Okay? But if they stay within the confines of the scriptures, they're going to relish in God and his grace and mercy. That's the idea. And so, again, I think the evidence that we have that number two and three are correct is because, again, this term here, Gigroptai, that term here is in the perfect passive indicative, and it's actually from the form grapho, means writing, okay? And any time it's used, especially in the perfect active indicative, it's always used with respect to the written word, especially in 1 Corinthians, every single time. And I'll show you that in the next slide here. So we know that it's talking about the written word of God. That's how Paul uses it throughout the Pauline literature. Uh, Let me show you the scriptures that Paul had used up to this point, and you'll see he actually uses that same term from Grapho. He says in 1 Corinthians 1.19, for it is written. Now notice, instead of, let me back up once. Notice here it's plural. That's a plural definite article. Literally, things which have been written. Okay? Well, here, it's in the the singular, the, the definite article indicating that he has a specific passage or at least specific passage section in mind. Okay, So here Paul says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. In the original context, that had to do with God's judgment upon Jerusalem, how he would take away any ability of them to boast due to their idolatry. Okay, And so then he applies it to all people for all time, specifically the Corinthians. They shouldn't boast in anything. Why? Well, because they're only saved by God's grace, right? So why boast in any of their merits? So he's, that's what he's talking about. Then he talks about the same thing, really, in 1 Corinthians one thirty one when he quotes from Jeremiah. And by the way, this is really Jeremiah 9.23 through 24. And he says this, Just as it is written, again, a form of grapho, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 2.9, he quotes from Isaiah 64 and 65. He says, As it is written, 
things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Remember, what's going on in Isaiah 64 and 65 is this coming judgment. And the only way that people can be saved is that they believe in Yahweh. Well, ironically, they can't because they can't perceive, they can't see or hear in a salvific way. That is the natural man. So the point is, if you're a Corinthian, why would you boast in your own power, in your own wisdom? Because you can't see nor can you hear in a saving way apart from God's grace. So who are you going to boast in? You're going to boast in God. That's the whole point. Now, I'm going to draw up a little thing here. I'll circle the, the terms that Paul uses in all these passages and show you what he's doing. 1 Corinthians 3, 19 through 20, he says, It is written, He is the one, that is the Lord, who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord, that is Yahweh, knows the reasonings of the wise that they are useless. Remember we talked about that where he quoted from Job 5.13 and Psalm 94.11. Now let me just show you some themes. What is Paul doing? Well, he's attacking the Corinthians' wisdom. He is attacking them in their boastful ways. He's saying if you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. Don't boast in your own power. Don't boast in your own wisdom, your Sophia, because according to, in, according to God's eyes, you have none. In the world's eyes, you may be brilliant, in the world's eyes, you may be powerful, but in God's eyes, it's all for naught. Again, he is attacking them for the fact that in order for them to see and to hear in a salvific way, that's an act that only God can, can bring about. Okay, um, He attacks them again in their wisdom and in their craftiness. So the point being is what Paul has done, and remember what the context is we're trying to interpret, what does he mean not to exceed what is written? Again, what Paul is saying is the totality of the Scriptures say that salvation is from first to last from God. And therefore, why would you boast in anything? You've done nothing. Here's what you've contributed, you Corinthians, and therefore, by extension, all of us, you're a wretched sinner. Wow. (laughs) Right? You sinned. And that's all you've contributed. So God has done it all. And so therefore, they should not exceed what had been written. That is what Paul had used from the Old Testament up to that point to show them that they should not boast. I think that's the best understanding of what he means by that. Now, the other thing I want to point out here is the second of the two purpose statements. It says, So that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. Realize that this statement now will take us all the way to verse 13. So the rest of the section that we're in is about Paul admonishing the Corinthians not to boast or not to be arrogant one against another. But it's more than them just being mean to one another. It's also about Paul's apostolic authority. Because if they elevate one teacher against another to boast or boost themselves in the eyes of another believer, what they're really doing is they're not understanding the gospel that Paul is preaching. And so Paul is beginning a defense of his own apostolic authority, which they're rejecting. Why? Because in their eyes, he doesn't have the intellect and the rhetorical skills that they love. So in verse 7, we see that the people of grace must not boast. Paul says, For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Notice this question. Literally in the Greek, it's the gar. This is gar, gar. And remember, I think I've mentioned this before. <laughs> in Greek class, we had grown men, when we learned gar, it's what's called a post-positive. So you, it's always the second word, but you say it first. And we, grown men on that day at seminary class were going around gar, trying to sound like pirates. I don't know why that amused me, but it was funny seeing men in their 40s saying gar, like a pirate to one another. So at any way, but it's um, literally for, for who 
judges you. So, in other words, what I'm showing you here is the New American Standard, they actually engage not just in translation, but in a little bit of interpretation as they put forward the term superior. But I think it's a good interpretation, okay? But just realize what it literally says is for who judges you, okay? And so the NASB, um, I think the NIV also has something to that effect. They're actually engaging in a little bit of interpretation more than just translation. So realize that does go on, but I think they nail it. That's what's going on. So notice this, what we have here, friends, is a play on words. So the idea here is diacrine, which is a form of diacrino. Now remember last week, Bob had talked about crino and judgment, the idea that we can judge what we can see and what we can know from the scriptures, but we can't judge what we can't know, right? Well, it's ironic that, that, that very, those terms, anacrino, diacrino, and crino, all the terms to do with judgment occur on this play on words. Let me show you where. 1 Corinthians 4, 3, Paul, remember, talking about the Corinthians, he said, it is a very small thing that I may be examined, and that's a form of anacrino. In other words, to take someone up and hold them up and examine their life, he said it was a very small thing to be examined by the Corinthians. Why? Because he only wanted to please the Lord. That is the master of the house. So Paul couldn't care less. <laughs> I sat for five minutes and I thought about that. And it's couldn't care less because if you could care less, well, then that could... Anyway, it's couldn't care less. He couldn't care less. Okay? So again, that term right here would be anacrino. And so Paul is doing this play on words in verse 7. And then again in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, he says, do not go on... Now, here's this crino judging before the time, okay? So, again, Paul is saying... Now, remember, there's three rhetorical questions here. What is a rhetorical question? It's a question, a question that leads to the obvious answer, okay? You don't have to supply it. It's implied. So, the first of the three questions is, for who regards you as superior? And, that, and again, that's a good interpretation of what Paul's saying. Well, the answer is no one. So, why are the Corinthians doing it? The second question, what did you have that you did not receive? The obvious answer is nothing. Okay. Well, then the third question, again, the obvious answer leads you to really a devastating conclusion. The question is, and if you did not receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? And that would hit them right to the heart. Realize, friends, that they'd be saying, you know, man, we're being fools. And again, friends, all by God's grace. Remember, God uses means to help his people persevere. And by God's grace, they would read this and they would be cut to the heart, saying, you're right. We just received salvation of our sins from god and we had nothing to do with it and friends a little mini application to this section to me was this i think that this passage in verse 7 shows us the importance of the doctrine of election for the christian in america in the world today to understand grace okay uh, ephesians 2 8 says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of verse, lest any man should boast. I think that goes into verse 9. But the point is, is not even our faith is of ourselves. It is the gift of God. Okay? So, in other words, we can't even boast in our faith that we were brighter, smarter, that we had more wisdom than our unbelieving neighbors. It was purely given to us so that we merely received it. So we have nothing to boast in. But, friends, if you're on the other side of the spectrum or in the Arminian position you can still boast in something. God went 99% of the way, but you went the 1%. That's why election, that he called us before the foundation of the world and predestined us, says no, God went 100% of the way and all you contributed was being a wretch who deserved judgment. Okay? And that's what Paul is saying. And so it's devastating. There's nothing they should be boasting in except the Lord. 
Now, one of the problems, friends, the Corinthians over-realized eschatology. And what Paul means by that and what's going on in this section is, remember, the Corinthians are Hellenistic thinkers. Now, because they had the gifts of the Spirit and they supposedly had greater wisdom, they believed that they had arrived into the end-all, be-all of human existence. They had superior wisdom and power than anyone else. But what they negated and neglected was the resurrection, the coming kingdom where Christ himself will reign. And friends, the reason why they neglected specifically the resurrection, which Paul will address in 1 Corinthians 15, is because to them the physical body was worthless. Okay, why? Well, because God would never make anything material, was in the back of their minds. Material things were evil. It's a very Gnostic-like thinking, right? And that's why they, didn't, they weren't concerned about sinning. Why? Well, because it doesn't matter what you do in the body. This body is worthless, okay? So they had a, a belief system then that was void of any ethical standards, okay? So what Paul's going to call them to is to say, no, your body does matter. Yes, it's going to perish, but you're living for the king and the kingdom that's coming. And so he has to destroy their, under, their understanding that they had arrived on this scene, that they needed nothing more. And so you'll see that now in verse 8. He says, you are already filled... You have already become rich, Paul says. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. This is filled with irony, okay, as you can probably detect. This is filled with irony. Now, one thing I want to point out, it's very interesting in the Greek text, and the only reason I'm getting into the Greek is that there's something I think that's important. And one thing is already is thrown forward. It's thrown forward in what's called the emphatic position. So something we lose... In the English, we don't see this, but in the Greek text, they throw words in the beginning of the sentence because word order doesn't matter, okay? And they'll throw words in the beginning to emphasize them. So, for instance, Paul puts this on there. Ade is already. So you have that in the beginning of the clause and another clause. So already is thrown forward. And the reason why it's important that already is in the beginning of the sentence or the clause is because I think, friends, it's very possible, because remember, there's no punctuation in Greek, it's put there by scholars who try to understand the breaks. I think it's very possible that these could have been more rhetorical questions. Let me explain. Think about this. The possibility that these are still rhetorical questions. And read it this way. Already are you filled? And why is that such a devastating rebuke of them? The obvious answer is no, we're not. Well, I mean, they are in one sense that they have all they need. But in another sense, the idea is that they haven't arrived on the scene fully. Remember, they're boasting in a realized eschatology. Already are you filled? Already have you become rich? Without us, have you become kings? So I think it's very possible that these are also rhetorical questions. Okay? And already is thrown forward because, again, Paul is attacking their over-realized eschatology. The other thing I want to point out is this term, without us. I want to hit that a little bit. But remember, let me just recap. The already not yet tension. In Paul's understanding, in his theology, Paul grants that they really do have the Spirit. Remember, he believes that these Corinthians are really believers, but they haven't seen yet the consummation of everything. Okay? So the important thing for Paul, and to understand his idea of what's going to happen in eschatology, is you already have salvation, you live it out now, but you haven't experienced it yet. The Corinthians believe that they had everything that was going to come now. And Paul has to obliterate that possibility. But it's very important that it says... When Paul says, you have become kings without us, realize without us, it's not that the Corinthians became Christians apart from Paul, 
Paul is not saying that you became believers apart from my preaching without us. Okay, that's not what he's saying. But the fact is that they were excluding Paul from their fellowship. Okay, so the idea is that they've already begun to reign, and it's without Paul. Paul is basically knocking, saying, do you mind if I come into the fellowship? Okay, isn't it ironic? The one who preaches them the gospel, who is the master architect of God's building, they've excluded on the outside. They're all standing on the inside having fellowship, saying, boy, that dumb Paul. He doesn't have the rhetorical skills that we boast in. Isn't it ironic? And so Paul is just devastating them. And at the end, what they should come away with is, boy, have we mistreated Paul, our apostle. We should listen to him. He's speaking true words from God. He is God's personal spokesman. And that's what he's doing. And again, it's not because Paul is just embittered. It's for their own sake. If they neglect the gospel that he's preaching, they're not going to persevere. Again, he says, I wish that you would become kings so that we also might reign with you. There's some irony in this too. Think about Paul wishes that the consummation had occurred so that his suffering would be replaced with reigning. Okay, so there's irony in this. Why? Because Paul had been suffering so for the sake of the gospel. So this whole thing is dripping with irony and a little bit of sarcasm. And again, to hit the Corinthians where it hurts so they know that they shouldn't boast and that they're apostles preaching the true gospel. Verses 9 through 10, we see ironically that the Corinthians who boast in themselves are really sitting in the seat of the scornful. Really, in some sense, they're violating the principles we see laid out in Psalm 1.1. Blessed is the man, right? Well, who is not blessed? Those who sit in the seat of the scornful, who sit in the way of the mocker. And that's exactly what the Corinthians are doing. Paul says in verses 9 through 10, For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. Now, what's interesting, let me attack this first portion of the verse 9. It would actually be better rendered this way. I think it's better translated for it seems to me that God has appointed us, the apostles, to be last. In fact, all doesn't even occur in the sentence in Greek. Okay, Now, why is it important that we render it that way? Well, I think it helps us understand that what's probably going on here is Paul is picking up on the Roman triumphal parades that they would engage in. When they would go out in battle and they would sack somebody, they would put the booty in the very back of the line. Okay, And so that's why the apostles were last. It was as if they had been sacked, they had been placed in the back of the line in a Roman triumphal parade. And those who were in the back of the line, that is the captives, what they were guaranteed was a night in the gladiator ring. They were going to be fighting the lions. And so they were condemned to die. That's what Paul is saying that the apostles were. They were men condemned to die because of the office that they held. That's the kind of suffering that they were engaged in. Okay, so if you're in the back of the line of the Roman triumphal parade, your picture was going to be on Gladiator today, okay? <laughs> the next issue, and whether you wanted it or not. That's what he's getting at. And I think, see, when I read it in the New American Standard, it says, for I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all. It's almost as if it's the last thought that he had. or something. It just kind of confuses the issue. So I think that's the best way to render it. Oh, by the way, I have a cross-reference just to show you that there's evidence that this idea of a Roman triumphal parade is in his mind. We see evidence of that, for instance, in 2 Corinthians 2.14 and also in Colossians 2.15. Who had the 2 Corinthians 2.14 passage? Oh, Pat has that one. So listen to this, and what you're going to see is this evidence that Paul knows about this Roman triumphal parade and references it. 
Yeah, uh, this is 2 Corinthians 2.14. Yeah. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Yeah, and so a lot of scholars believe that that's a reference to this sacking of the enemy. But these people would be not the booty, but the, the Christians would therefore be part of the triumphal procession, not in the back of the line that are going to go to the gladiators. Or uh, Just to make a comment, I, yeah. this is a real verse I, I really like. Yeah. Uh, because um, in another translation I heard it said, he makes my life a constant pageant of triumph. Wow. That's, that's actually very beautiful. That's exactly what's being stated. Yeah, that's a, it's, it's the idea. Yeah, thanks, Pat. We see the same idea in Colossians uh, 2. I think it was Colossians 2.15. Uh, oh, yeah, Larry had that. I try to keep people clumped together so Robert doesn't pull a hamstring running to and fro. <laughs> that's right. 2.15? Yeah. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Yeah, and again, now the imagery there is that these stoichia have been made a public spectacle of. And again, it's this idea that on the triumphal procession of the Romans, they would have the captives in the back of the line being made spectacles of. That may be being thought of in Paul's mind there as well. So uh, with that, that's what's going on there. Paul is talking about that they have been, as apostles, sentenced to death. But yet, it's ironic that the Corinthians, those who have boasted those who have acted in ways contrary to the gospel, they're the ones who are being exalted. So notice Paul, though this is dripping again with sarcasm and with irony, he says, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. This term prudent is actually a pejorative. It comes from phronimos, which is a synonym of Sophia. So it's a play off of Sophia. What's interesting is every time Paul uses this for wisdom, it is always a pejorative. It's the idea, well, you think you're wise. You think you really know something. It's that kind of idea always. And in fact, I have some more references here. Second Corinthians 11:19. who had that? Yeah, Jim. You're going to see that he is obviously using it in a sarcastic manner here in Second Corinthians 11:19. Second Corinthians 11:19. For since you are so wise, you put up with fools gladly. Yeah, so there you go. Um, so the, the idea then is they're really not wise, right? Romans 11.25, who had that one? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of Gentiles has come in. Yeah, great. So the idea wise in your own estimation, in your own eyes, there again is phronimos. So again, it's used in a pejorative. So the point is, he's using it the same way here, that you are prudent. Well, that's dripping with sarcasm. They're really not prudent in Christ, are they? But they think they are. So ironically, everything they think about Paul... In other words, he's a knucklehead. He doesn't have rhetorical skills. He's not wise. He doesn't have power. In God's eyes, he does. And they think that they are prudent, that they are wise, that they do have power, and in God's eyes, they don't. Okay, that's the irony. So the apostles' friends are men who bear their cross, and it's, it's not only their honor, but also their duty as apostles. It says, To this present hour we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless, and we toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless when we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become, as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. Notice again, friends, that it's to this present hour and even until now. And again, 
this is really Paul taking on their over-realized eschatology. So, in other words, if you're really reigning now, if the kingdom has really come now, if this is all there is, then those who are most godly are suffering, namely the apostles, aren't they? Right? And so, this present hour and even until now, that's attacking again the realized, over-realized eschatology of the Corinthians. That's why he's putting those terms. Okay? So how is it, the irony is, how is it that the personal spokesman for God is so hated by the world, yet they are exalted and self-congratulatory? It, it doesn't coincide. And the point being is if the Corinthians want to be partakers in the kingdom, they have to be more like Paul. And if you're more like Paul, what are you? You're hated by the world. You're abused. Now, now again, not just to be abused for the sake of being abused to show you, everyone that you're spiritual, but that's what, that's what ends up happening, especially in those days, where there weren't, I mean, you didn't have the First Amendment, okay, that you have in the United States. You didn't have the protection of the U.S. Constitution. You didn't have the U.S. military protecting the right to assemble, right? These people were attacked often for being Christians. You, again, you would be, if you're a Christian and you made too much of a ruckus, you would end up on Gladiator Weekly, okay? You would end up being martyred for the sake of the kingdom. And Paul is saying it's ironic that those who are boasting if they really want to become more like christ they ought to be like him bearing their cross daily so an application friends there's a lot of applications in this section but bob is actually going to be hitting applications so next week when i preach bob is going to be taking us through applications and it's it's nice because we get to um pick your brain of 30 some years of ministry and i really enjoyed the last time we got to do that so i'm just going to give you one and we have many more to go so Next week, we'll be doing more of those. Uh, Bob is going to be leading through applications. So here's one that I thought of as kind of poignant, is that we as believers must remember that suffering is the rule, not the exception for following Christ in this world and during this age. Remember, the Corinthians were saying, well, we've arrived, and we have all we need. Well, no. Friends, the last enemy, according to 1 Corinthians 15, to be swallowed up is death. And we long for that. I've got a a relative that's in the hospital right now who was a healthy man. He got a fever, I don't know, um, it was probably in January. And now he um, steadily declined. Just a very healthy man. The picture of health, uh, 50 years old, I think, is actually how old he was. Uh, Worked out all the time. And now he's on death's door. Why? The doctors don't know. He came up with something called Stills disease. And so, friends, what good is it to him that he has everything now, namely his power and his wisdom. And remember, that's what the world is boasting in. Get all you can now, but it's all dying. It's all perishing. It's all fading. So, friends, we must live for Christ and him today. We must have the doctrine that leads us to pick up our cross daily and to follow Christ with those who are ashamed in the eyes of the world. Friends, in today's Christianity, it's very, I think, very popular to long for your best life now. In fact, um, ironically, Bob, you'd heard a message from MacArthur about Joel Olstein, and that's what Justin Peters had talked about, having your best life now. That's what the Corinthians really wanted, and that's what the Corinthians believed, that they were having their best life now. Friends, the only thing that you're promised is that by Christ, he said, you will in this world have trouble, but take heed that I have overcome the world, right? So friends, again, we don't boast in our power. We don't boast in the things that we have in this world. They're all fading away. We have to be Christians who realize that suffering is the norm for Christ. It's not unusual. It is our duty, and it is something that we are called to. That doesn't mean, again, we look forward or look forward to it or we look to, to suffer 
on, uh, in other words, it's not like we're trying to gain some sort of propitiation by suffering or some sort of satisfaction before God, but it comes because that's the nature of this life. So friends, our best life isn't now. The best is yet to come. And the only reason why we are partakers of the kingdom to come is because of God's grace, something that we certainly didn't deserve. Okay, so with that, I'm going to take any of your uh, comments or questions. Uh, you mentioned earlier that the Corinthians uh, came from a Hellenistic worldview, and uh, it seems like they were making a disconnect between the body and the spirit. Yeah. With Paul's admonition in other places in the Corinthians, you know, against fornication and against idolatry and all that stuff. I just I have a tough time seeing how they could make a a disconnect because one's faith in Christ results in actions yeah. which are carried out by the body. Yeah, I think that's a good point, and I think that's precisely Paul's point: is if you really believe in Christ, and and he knew that they did, they were living in a way that was inconsistent. Why? Well, because anything dealing with physical material, namely the body, it didn't matter. So whether you sin uh, through fornication, it, it didn't matter the way you treated your body. That's why he has to point out that the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's why in 1 Corinthians 6 he has to point out that those who engage in such behavior are not going to be partakers of the kingdom of God. But he says, so were some of you, right? So the idea is that they're not living consistently with who they really are, that is, believers in Christ. So realize Paul is going to be using, and God will be using ultimately, this letter to conform the Corinthians to who they really are. Now, does that mean every single Corinthian is a regenerate believer? Well, certainly not. But many of them, and probably most of them were, that Paul is addressing. So, yeah, Bill, I think you're right. They're not living consistently within a Christian worldview, and they have to be instructed to do so. So their over-realized eschatology made them have a faith that had no ethical obligations. Why? What you do in the body doesn't matter, because the body is evil anyway. That's in the back of their mind. Yeah, Rich. Yeah, the Corinthian concept of 99% God and 1% me, yeah. I think is can be attributed to the biggest problem of evangelicalism today. I agree. Uh, C.S. Lewis, he, uh, he felt that uh, human beings were 90% depraved and 10% good because if we didn't have 10% goodness in us, how do we choose Jesus Christ? Yeah, that was his concept. Yeah. And just another comment on the Jan Markell show yesterday, this guy who was on the first hour, he made yeah. a comment and he said, Christianity is not a religion of addition. And I think that's a big problem. We just add Jesus Christ to ourselves, what we got going on already. It's a, it's a religion of, of uh, submission. We submit to the Lord Jesus Christ and he you know, builds that foundation within us. Yeah, well said. Yeah, I like that distinction. Yeah, Rich, I think the... The, the debate between election, and that is between the, more the Calvinistic and the Arminian camps, because America has gone more Arminian, I think that it's led to problems like the seeker-sensitive movement. Because if, in fact, people's salvation is somewhat of man, well, you can certainly control the conditions of the sermon. You can put the mood lighting right. You can say things just right. And if you don't offend people, perhaps they will reach out and grab on to this Christ. But if, as I think the scriptures clearly teach, people are dead in their trespasses, none seek after him, no, not one, if there is complete inability, well, then what you have to do is you have to be faithful to the gospel and you have to preach that and God alone converts. 
And so that's really the battle. And unfortunately, I think we've, as a society at large, we've gone the way of the Armenian camp, and it's the byproduct of it has led us into a lot of bad theology and ideas like seeker-sensitive. And I think even the emergent, by extension, comes from that. So, yeah. So what, what we have in Christ is the union of the roles of the lawgiver or the king and the priest in the order of Melchizedek. Mm-hmm. So what the Corinthians here were, were failing to fully understand is that how, how are we supposed to come to the priest and ask for forgiveness uh, you know, in that capacity without being able to say, well, yes, you are also my king, and I, I submit to your rules. Mm. So you can't have one without the other. Yeah, ah, I like that. Yeah. Yeah, they wanted the, they took the priest, but they rejected the king. Yeah, yeah, very good, yeah. Yeah, he wasn't the Lord, and yeah, that's right. Because, yeah, Pat. Paul had to keep writing to uh, all his, um, the new Christians, and even to the Romans, because in Romans 12:1 it says, uh, brethren, Present your bodies as right. living sacrifices Amen. unto the Lord. Is your, your reasonable service and worship. Right. Well said, Pat. Exactly. And I think that's a great passage to bring up because it shows what they were struggling with. The body doesn't matter. What I do here doesn't matter. Oh, it does matter. <laughs> You're right. Yeah. Oh, I said, yeah. Um, could you uh, explain fo- more fully what you mean by the statement, they have the spirit but not yet seen consummation, please? Yeah, and I, let me just back up. I think we were verses, uh, yeah, right here probably, verse 8. This over-realized eschatology. I, I was commenting on this. You are already filled. You have already become rich. And so what I think is going on there is Paul is asking the question already, already. He's putting that forward, remember. But the idea is, in one sense, they already have the Spirit. Right? They are they really are believers. He he believes that fully that they responded to the gospel. But do they already have all of the promises? Ephesians four thirty, you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day of what? Till redemption. And so the work of the Spirit doesn't end now. Okay? And so we have this in Paul's eschatology and already not yet. And we're not home. And they think that they've got everything that they need. And really the reason why they think that is because they're not boasting in the Lord, they're boasting in themselves. They're smarter now because they have these spiritual gifts. They have power that they never had before. And so they think it's all for here and now, and they're neglecting the future. And Paul's eschatology is this is just what we have today in the Spirit, that is the gifts of the Spirit and and the fruits of the Spirit are merely a down payment of what is to come. Does that make sense? So they ha- he has to fully drill that home that they haven't yet arrived. And that's why he's attacking them. Already? Already? Anybody? Oh, yeah, Bob. <laughs> yeah, I, I, thank you, uh, oh, thanks, Eric. It's been this fun. really fantastic. It's been fun. Just last week, I drove down to Iowa. We have a trailer down there on Lake Okoboji, and Diane's down there waiting to take her dad to have surgery at Mayo Clinic one of these days. And so I drove down, and somebody from the church here gave me a set of CDs that came from Ligonier Ministries Conference uh, that was held at John MacArthur's church. And this conference was, the the speakers were um, R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur, Michael Horton, Peter Jones, which is a guy that I know, 
And I think one other guy I haven't got to his uh, CD yet. And the the messages were just absolutely fantastic. So I got it's three hours down, three hours back. I got six of them done. MacArthur was talking about what well, you were talking about your best life now. Yeah. yeah. He just knocked it out of the park. <laughs> okay. MacArthur was uh, so good and so clear and so powerful and so unashamed of the gospel. He was saying the only possible way you can have your best life now is to remain an unbeliever. Okay? <laughs> if, you, if you totally reject the gospel and yeah. just enjoy whatever is out here in this world and common grace, God allows the, uh, you know, the rain to fall and the just and the unjust yeah. and the sun shines and all that. You can enjoy all there is in this world the best you can, but it's going to be a lot worse later. Right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, but if you're a Christian, as soon as you repent and believe the gospel, yeah. you just gave up your best life right. now. <laughs> okay? Yeah. Because now that you're a Christian, your best life lies in the future. That's right. Yeah. And so, uh, some people think MacArthur's extremist in what he says, but I, I thought he, he really proved his point. Yeah. It, he literally says this, that Joel Osteen is the mouthpiece of Satan. He's telling people by his doctrine that the best thing they can do is reject the gospel. Wow. Because that's the only way you have your best life now. Hmm. So uh, that was fantastic. The other thing, I'm, I'm just giving a little book report yeah, on my yeah. CDs yeah, I listen to. Okay. I, I just was kind of sad when I got to my destination because I was having so much fun listening to these CDs. Need a cabin further away. <laughs> yeah, it's only three hours down That's the right. highway where yeah. we go. Sproul, God bless him. He's an older gentleman now. And uh, it's his turn to speak at this big, huge conference at MacArthur's Church. And he spent his whole time just preaching on the story of the rich young ruler. Wow. And it, it totally blew me away that here's a brilliant theologian who's been teaching for who knows how many years, okay, was trained under uh, another brilliant theologian, theologian by the name of Dr. Gerstner. Uh, and he, he's, you know, I don't know how old he'll live to be, but he's an older man. Yeah. And he kind of gets to the point where, okay, I've studied, I've taught, I've done all these things. And here's my chance to speak in front of all these people. And he spends this whole hour speaking about the rich young ruler and the gospel. And how the rich young ruler wouldn't see that he was a sinner. His whole problem was he couldn't see that he was a sinner. I've kept all these things from my youth up. And that Jesus' admonition to sell all was just an illustration. It wasn't a general law that everybody that's going to be a Christian can't ever own property. But the, the, to finally try to get this man to see that he's a sinner. And he wouldn't submit to the Savior. He wouldn't submit to Jesus Christ as Lord. And he, wow. and he walked off. He spent a whole hour just talking about that parable. Sorry, the older I get, the more emotional I get. I don't know what that's all about. (laughs) You know, I was thinking as I listened to that, if I ever get to be as old as R.C. Sproul, I hope Sproul, sorry, 
I hope that in my mind, there's nothing but the gospel. Wow. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He didn't have yeah. anything else to talk about. He right. didn't. He didn't go into some deep theological conundrum that somebody hasn't already figured yeah. out, or this or that or the <laughs> other thing. Just the gospel. Yeah. And Michael Horton was the young guy on, on the group, <laughs> and uh, he was talking about the gospel as well. Wow. And it gave me a greater appreciation for Reformed theology because they were saying, every one of them, that we, for us to understand the gospel, we have to realize that we're bringing nothing. Wow. That we're lost sinners, we're not contributing anything to our own salvation, and that the fact that we're Christian is attributable to nothing other than the grace of God alone and nothing else. Praise God. Yeah. God alone. That's right. And it was very interesting. They were talking about the history of Christian theology that when Pelagius came along uh, in, I think, the 5th century and taught that there's no original sin and that all humans have the ability to to obey God on their own without any special work of grace. And Pelagius was refuted by Augustine in the 4th century well, then a little bit later than that, along comes semi-Pelagianism, which is what Roman Catholicism yeah. is now on, which is what most of Arminianism and yeah. uh, evangelicalism is semi-Pelagian. Semi-Pelagian says, well, God did just enough to kind of release us, you know, a little bit for all people, 100%, so that now they have the ability to respond without a work of grace. So they're not really dead... They're just semi-dead. <laughs> and in your semi-dead state, you can decide you want to be alive, and then that's what sort of initiates salvation. Well, I'd read about this, but I'd forgotten about it. They had a council called the Council of Orange in, uh, I don't know, 800 or whatever A.D. that condemned semi-Pelagianism, all right, and said that salvation is by grace alone. But the Council of Trent, some some 800 years later, anathematizes what was actually taught at the Council of Orange. And and the Council of Trent comes back and teaches semi-Pelagianism again, and that became the official Roman Catholic doctrine. And um, I also noticed as I was listening to these CDs how often the name Charles Finney came up. And Finney is like the bugaboo of evangelicalism in America. Finney was a full Pelagian. And he resonated with American Christians because he taught human ability. That God will never command you to do anything that you're not already able to do. So according to Finney, if God says, Be ye perfect as I am perfect, well, then you're perfectly able to go be perfect. Wow. Just go do it. Make your decision and go be perfect because God said to do it. That's Finney. And why is he idolized as a great revivalist when he was one of the worst heretics we've yeah. ever had in the United States of America? Right. And I was, when I was in uh, uh, seminary, I brought that up, and I, I called Finney a, a heretic. <laughs> and... 
professor said, well, okay, Mr. DeWay, put it right out there. <laughs> I, was always, I was always throwing the bombs out in the classroom. <laughs> it's, it, but it is, it's heretical. And these guys on the yeah. CDs were talking about that, and it infected evangelicalism to the point where it's just so American. We are the can-do, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you can achieve, you can do it, you can make it. And so we have a religion of human ability. What happened because of our American religion of human ability? The seeker movement, Mm. as Eric was saying, right? Yeah, that's right. And so the idea is everybody out there is just ready to become a Christian, ready to be a great person, ready to have their best life now. We just need to dangle the bait out there and make it seem... In fact, uh, Finney said exactly this. He said, we just need to have excitement mm. enough to stir up the dormant moral powers within every person. Wow. <laughs> and so you have within every sinner dormant moral powers that could just explode into being a great Christian, but you've got to stir it up. Mm. Well, isn't that the prescription for the seeker movement? Trying yeah, to stir it right. up? Yep. So I love these CDs. I, I, I don't know how you get them. I... Uh, I actually was, we were doing our CAC mailing. There was a lady from the church here, and somebody online had, had emailed me and said, you've got to get these CDs from the Ligative Ministries uh, uh, conference at MacArthur's church from this, this March. Mm-hmm. It's a fantastic. And she said it's worth every penny just to hear MacArthur talking about Wow. Uh, Joel Osteen. Wow. <laughs> and I said, well, I heard about that. And this lady was sitting here mailing. And she went out to her car, got the CDs, and handed them to me. She says, here, you have them. I said, well, I can order my own. She said, no, you listen to these. I'll go get some more. <laughs> That's great. So wow. somewhere online you can get those. Wow. I, I highly recommend it. Dear ones, the only hope for American, uh, well, evangelical, the term is meaningless nowadays. Wow. Okay, but the only hope for honest, godly, gospel-centered, Christ-honoring Christianity in America today is to get back to the idea that salvation is a work of God. Amen. That's right. God Amen. saves sinners. Sinners do not save themselves. Amen. All right. Amen. And if we believe that then we have no other thing to do that makes any sense whatsoever besides preach the gospel. God uses means. Uh, This is just clear. It's just obvious. Uh, Romans 10, one of the preachers, I think it was uh, Horton, was talking about Romans 10. Hmm. You can't go up to heaven. You can't go down in the depth of the sea. The word is near you, the word of Christ that we preach. Okay? And so... How will they believe without, unless they hear it? How will they hear unless somebody preaches? How will they preach unless they're sent? Okay? So the only thing that makes any sense whatsoever is to preach the gospel to everybody and allow God to use his means, which is the message preached, to save those who are going to believe. Wow, wow. And nothing else makes any sense. So I... Uh, since I came to understand this in 1986, and I'm sorry I'm a slow learner, <laughs> it took 15 years to understand the gospel. Wow. Once I did, the process began of changing me into a gospel preacher. Wow. 
because before that I was always trying to excite human ability and get people to make the right decisions and this and that and the other thing. Once I understood that it's a total work of God, I've come to the point where nothing in the whole world makes any sense but preaching the gospel. Wow. And when you do that, God is going to save everyone he's going to save. Yeah, man. That's right. I, I absolutely believe that. And I'm here at Twin City Fellowship, we are, by God's grace, committed to that principle of preaching the gospel. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, okay. God. Okay. And, <laughs> thank you. And the other thing that, that, that's great about the gospel preaching like this is that it cr- makes a church be the church. Yeah. All right. If you do the Joel Osteen, your best life now, psychological ditties, feeling better, being happy, trying this, trying that, you fill the church with unbelievers that never do get converted. That's right. Yeah. Okay? There's nothing offensive. There's nothing that's going to drive anybody away. There's no, no offense whatsoever. But if you preach the gospel... You, you convert those who are going to be converted, you offend everybody else. Mm. <laughs> so at the end of the day, the church is filled with true Christians who love Jesus Christ with whom you can have fellowship, yeah. and you're part of the family of God, and, you, and everybody around you, not everybody, there's always going to be some people. And as John Gerstner said, I, I listened to a whole series that, that he did on video toward the end of his life, there are always going to be the uh, there's always going to be the visible and the invisible church, okay. But what Gerstner says is if anybody, whether they're converted or not, if anybody's willing to sit under the preaching of the gospel and live a scandal-free life, who knows when yeah. God might save them? And so anybody's welcome in the church if they're willing to sit under the gospel and listen to it, yeah. and if it doesn't offend them, okay. But by preaching the gospel, mostly you end up with truly saved people in the church. Yeah, which is a blessing. Yeah, yeah, well, I know it's I mean, wonderful. I love it. You know, it's funny, Bob, you mentioned that. Um, I, I got on some sort of mailing list. I don't know, you probably do too. That somehow when you become a pastor, they know, somebody knows. I don't know. It's, I don't mean to sound <laughs> conspiratorial, but I, somebody was calling me, and they, they wanted to set us as a whole church up for these financial seminars. And what it would do is it would make you be better givers. And I said, well, we have tremendous givers. And the guy goes, well, what do you do? What kind of? And I said, well, we preach the gospel. And, uh, <laughs> and I said, you know, so it's God's grace. You know, Bob, as you were talking about Charles Finney, I thought of a book title. Because Charles Finney theology really leads to the American ideal of the Marlboro Man. Pull yourselves up by your bootstrap. Yeah, right? The Marlboro Man's got the cigarettes, and there's nothing he can't do. He can, you know, fix his Jeep with, you know, a stick of gum and, you know, dental floss, right? It's pull yourself up by the bootstraps. But it's interesting. One of my favorite stories about election in the Bible and God uh, about covenant love is Melphibosheth. So I thought a great title of a book would be Melphibosheth or the Marlboro Man. Which way will America go, right? right? <laughs> so maybe we'll have to write that. Bob. I think you should write <laughs> that. At least make it a CIC article. Right. But you're right. It's Charles Finneyism has led to the Marlboro Man in our theology. Um, absolutely. So yeah. I, my little report is that I had six wonderful hours on the road. <laughs> That's great. Uh, listening to people who extol the grace of God in salvation. Wow. Praise God. And that it's the work of God, and that the only thing really at the end of the day is the gospel. Mm. And you get to be 80 years old, and the only thing you want to talk about is the gospel. Wow. I think that's really good. (laughs) Praise God.
Oh, that's great. What a fitting end. Oh, yeah. Oh, good. Um, did you guys hear that? that? We have the Gerstner videos in the library. If you okay. Didn't hear that. Yes. Um, our men's group, we used to meet on Saturday mornings back in our old building, and we watched the whole series of it's Gerstner. Wow. He's teaching right. through the Westminster Confession, 95% of which I agree with, but sure. there's 5% I don't, basically eschatology, infant baptism, stuff like that. But Gerstner, this guy is old. <laughs> and uh, he is so full of vim and vigor, you cannot believe That's it. <laughs> he was talking about the Catholic doctrine of, uh, uh, what is it, works beyond, what's the name for the works beyond? Uh, oh, super. Uh, super lapse, no, super. Uh, irrigation. Yeah, I can't, I can't even remember the name. Super, uh, but he's talking about this idea that some people can be really special yeah. creatures. Christians and do works way beyond everybody else. So, super irrigation. There you go. Super and so he's talking about it. Here's this guy in his 80s. He's talking about it. He says, that is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my entire life. <laughs> I hope I'm like that when I'm that old. <laughs> we'll hold you to it, Bob. That's great. Um, so anyhow, uh, yeah, Gerstner is, is, is an interesting guy. He was the mentor for R.C. Sproul. How, how old did he live to be? Well, I don't know. I mean, the videos were probably shot late 70s, early 80s, okay. and he died not too long after that. Because he contributed some to the apologetic books. I know uh, Sproul was involved with. Like, yeah, uh, he lived your... into the 80s. Yeah. I so don't know what year uh, Gerstner was born, but uh, he was a brilliant yeah. theologian and was the men. And then um, Sproul was talking about him on these CDs about yeah. having sat under him in seminary. Wow, praise God for men like that. Yeah. Well, we thank you for joining. Oh, you got something? Okay. Oh, the uh, the Ligonier Ministry uh, Conference from two, March 2010. It was held at Grace Community Church, which is MacArthur as the pastor. I would highly recommend it. Somebody told me this. No, it wasn't at Shepherd's. It was Ligonier Ministry. Okay. He'll find it and put it on a reference link. Somebody said it's worth the price of all the CDs just to hear MacArthur talking about Joel Osteen. <laughs> and I totally agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be worth it just to hear that. That was, that was precious. That wow. was unbelievable. Wow. Well, God bless you, and yeah. we'll see you upstairs. And we're in the book of Acts today. Yep, we start Acts yeah. today. Well, that's going to be great.